Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, listeners. Orthopedic Urgencies and Emergencies. It's my pleasure to welcome Caitlin Muldoon, who's a PA. Caitlin, thanks for being on our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Let's talk about open book pelvic fractures. And that, thankfully, is not something that I see in clinic. If somebody shows up to my clinic with us, they're at the wrong place and they will go to somewhere else pretty quickly. But what is an open book pelvis fracture and how does it happen? An open book pelvic fracture is a type of pelvic fracture that results in disruption of the ring from an anterior compression mechanism. They usually occur secondary to high energy blunt trauma. We often picture them with a significant disruption anteriorly. Pelvic ring fractures always have an anterior and a posterior component. So we need to also look for something on the posterior aspect. Because the fractures typically involve significant internal bleeding, if concern is noted in the field, EMS will place this patient in a binder to tampon on the bleeding. Once in the ED, the patient's managed according to ATLS guidelines, which include a preliminary chest and pelvis x-ray. If they're not already in a binder, once the fracture is identified on the pelvis, they need to be stabilized. Right. And the hemorrhage, I think you said, was the thing. There's a significant risk of mortality with this injury. I think you mentioned that hemorrhage was one of the big risks. Mm-hmm. And then the other injuries, I mean, you can imagine your pelvis is basically splayed open and, you know, bladder injuries, urogenital, neurovascular the binder, just to comment on that, when I took my last ACLS class, the fellow was teaching ATLS and mm-hmm. he said that you have to make sure you get the binder put on correctly. If it's too low, too high, it's not going to work and can actually cause more harm. So I think you need to know how to do that if you're going to be seeing that kind of trauma, those patients. Is that right, Caitlin? Yeah, absolutely. A binder is helpful. The draw sheet on a bed works just as well. And you want to center that over the greater trochanters. I've seen a lot of them misplaced a little more proximally on the iliac crest or too low, kind of mid thigh, but over the greater trochanters is where you want it. Gotcha. Native hip dislocations, same thing. I don't see these in clinic. I have seen some total hip dislocations, and that's a different thing. And I'll share a story with you guys. It's kind of humorous, well, relatively speaking, but kind of the same injury, right? High energy, knee to the dashboard, kind of jamming the hip, posteriorly dislocating it. You know, I can imagine falling off ladders or that kind of stuff. What other injuries are associated with these? And do you get them back in the same way as you do total hips? The maneuvers to get a total hip and a native hip are the same. I'd say the biggest key to getting them back in is adequate sedation. So it's pretty difficult to manipulate someone's leg and and hip to reduce it if you're fighting all of their muscles. That would be my key for those. Other injuries that tend to be associated with hip dislocations, because it's, again, a major trauma, they have a lot of concurrent traumatic injuries, maybe outside the musculoskeletal system. Acetabulum fractures aren't uncommon. Sciatic nerve injuries of the ipsilateral side, as well as ipsilateral knee injuries, also tend to show up. Got it. So, for the reduction maneuver for total hips, I saw this, and the surgeon that was doing it was about six foot seven, maybe (laughs) eight, big, tall guy. And the move for people that don't know this or haven't seen it before is that you stand over the patient while they're lying on the bed. You kind of have their hip flex, their knee flex. And like Caitlin said, they have to be out. They're not going to let you do this unless they're knocked out. But you just kind of pull that knee, that flex knee and, you know, pull the whole patient up and the hip pops back in. 
Well, the first one of these I saw, this six foot seven, six foot eight surgeon jumps up on the stretcher and it doesn't go down and his head's almost hitting the ceiling as he's pulling on the poor woman's leg and it pops back in. Anyway, when he got finished, I was high-fiving and told him that was the most awesome thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was so cool. Anyways, I, I just wanted to share that. I thought that was uh, a pretty impressive thing. Okay, knee dislocations. And I have seen a couple of these. I haven't seen them acutely. I've seen them after they've been reduced. But man, this is a bad injury. All of these injuries are bad or all of these problems are bad. But the knee dislocations, I mean, they can be bad. Vascular stuff, neurologic injuries. Caitlin, tell us about ABI, please. What does ABI stand for? And how does that come into play for this kind of thing? Yeah. So ABI stands for the ankle brachial index. And I think most of us are familiar with it as we learned in school or on rotations as being a measure of peripheral arterial disease. And that's when ABI is greater than one. In the traumatic setting, an ABI under 0.9 is the marker of diminished peripheral perfusion. You obtain an ABI by taking the systolic blood pressure of the ankle, so of the posterior tibial artery, and you divide it by the systolic blood pressure of the ipsilateral brachial artery. And the number that comes out is the, hopefully greater than 0.9. Got it. Caitlin, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Awesome, thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to the Ortho PAC podcast. Listeners, our fourth annual Ortho in the West conference will be arthritis to arthroplasty, February the 17th through the 19th, 2023, in Phoenix, Arizona. The details are on paos.org website. Registration is open.